Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. It's time for another great author interview here in the StoryCraft Cafe. Our guest for this show is Deborah Crombie, who has been writing a series. We're, you know, at almost 20 books over 30 years. And how does she keep coming up with mysteries and things to put these characters through? We talk all about it today. How you write a whodunit and keep an ongoing series going and keep the head of steam up. We're going to talk all about it today. Coming up next week, we kick off our rewrite a book in 60 days with dabble challenge you know if you joined us back in the fall we did write a novel in 60 days with dabble challenge and now what do you do with that manuscript that you came up with how do we whip it into shape and this is going to be a 60 day challenge we're assembling a a uh, panel of of guests that are going to go through the motions each week and we hope you will join us we love having that studio audience uh so to speak as we work through these issues and get comments from you and help answer your questions as we figure out this process for ourselves so starting february 15th at 8 p.m eastern time that'd be 7 central you know and then do the math back to mountain time and pacific time and uh, join us then you can find links to it at storycraft.cafe now on to our show and we are live here in the storycraft cafe uh i am hank garner your host as always today i'm super excited to have deborah crombie on the show with me she has a brand new book and today is release day for it it's a killing of innocence it is the is it the 19th um, it is the 19th book in the series? trying to not get my hands in front of the cover here there we and go the, i know good. what a phenomenal cover the the duncan it kincaid is gorgeous, and Jen- isn't it i love yes, it. it is it I is they did a terrific job on this i know i love it a little input uh, from me yeah the Duncan Kincaid, Gemma James uh, series. This is book 19. Uh, how it many is. years have you been writing this series, Deborah? I, well, actually, last Friday, I think, was the 30th anniversary of the publication of my first book. It's like, wow. how did this even happen? I don't, I don't know. I couldn't have imagined. Of course, it should be 30 books if I wrote faster. But <laughs> Well, we're happy to have what we have, you know. <laughs> Um, Deborah, before we, we get into talking about it, um, I have a, a question that, that I've been asking people lately, and it's been a lot of fun, uh, to get people's responses, but, um, is there a piece of writing advice that you got somewhere along your journey, you know, before you were published or afterwards or whatever that has stuck with you? And maybe you think, wow, that was such a great piece of advice. I'm so glad I've held on to it. Or. Uh, and, and maybe it's both. Or do you have a piece of advice that was so horrible? Um, you just think, 
why would anyone share that with someone else? Do, do you have a, a piece that, that stands out in your mind? Uh, well, I, I have a couple. Actually, I took, uh, after I graduated from college, I took um, a continuing education type creative writing course. And the instructor basically told me that I should give up, <laughs> that I was terrible and was never going to write anything worth reading. Um, and I didn't try writing anything again for about 10 years after that. So, um, it's not the kind of advice you should give people. It's really not. No. Um, so, and, but my, my favorite positive adage, I think was, yeah. uh, Nora Roberts, bad pages are better than no pages. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have written that down and stuck it to the top of my laptop because it, it just, you got to get in the chair and put something on the page. Oh, and, and I don't know about you, Deborah, but I've had times like that where I have felt that the, the pages I was writing were just trite and they were terrible and no one's ever going to want to read this. And and that that advice of knowing, well, at least I can go back later and edit it and I can come back to it when I'm in a different mindset, yeah. when when I have a different perspective and at least I can manipulate, you know, the one good idea that I had on this page. But but what I found out is that when I go back, it's rarely as terrible as I think it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that, I, I don't know what it is. It there, gives there, you a you jumping know, off point. Yeah. And it's so weird that, that our, our minds play these tricks on us, you know, that, that you're no good, nothing you create will ever be good enough. And, and, you know, looking back, it's, it's always different. It's always different. Um, after that piece of terrible advice that you got, and then you said it, you didn't write anything for 10 years after that, what was the, the motivation to, to give it a crack again. Well, I, and at the time I had written, well, I'd written poetry since I was about 14. Yeah. And um, then, and I had written some little sort of literary leaning short stories and submitted them and never had yeah. any success with those, but I hadn't actually tried to write a novel. And I don't think I had ever really contemplated writing a novel. Um, and this is a little bit of a long story that we might get to from, from other angles, but I yeah. had lived in Scotland and England and come back to the States. And I was just desperately homesick for England. Um, and I was over there on a trip with my, my Scottish now ex-husband and uh, we were in Yorkshire and we saw uh, somewhere in on the roads, the, the Yorkshire Moors, we saw a Georgian house that had been converted to timeshares. And I said, can we go in and, oops, sorry, I forgot to sign up. <laughs> it's fine. There we go. And uh, I thought, wouldn't that make a great setting for a sort of, you know, contemporary country house mystery? Right. Uh, and I took off from there and I came up with my detectives and I had the bones of a plot and um, and I started writing and I was just absolutely 
determined to to write a novel um in spite of the fact that lots of people made fun of me uh it might be a good idea to tell aspiring writers that don't tell a lot of people that you're writing a book just do it yeah uh, yeah, the, unless the, you find like-minded people who are also working on writing books. Yeah, well, well, writing that first book is is one thing entirely, and you know Stephen King in his book on writing talks about writing with the door closed, it, at least that first draft. You know, yeah. whatever your process for sharing with with beta readers or you know trusted confidants, you know for that next draft or whatever. That's that's a, a one thing. But keeping that first one sacred uh, is is really important, especially if it's your first novel. Yes, yes. Um, and I did eventually. I took writing courses, you know, yeah. and went to some conferences. And um, I did eventually end up in a writer's group. that We had all taken the same writing course. Um, so we we knew that we were all working from the same parameters in our our criticism, which is really helpful because I think writing groups can be dangerous yeah. um, because a lot of people don't know how to criticize helpfully and what sort of things to criticize that would be helpful. Right. Um, so it was really great that we were all on the same page. Yeah, and and some people just don't understand what you're trying to do. Um, there's, you know, having a a a, um, a specific audience early in the process is really important. That that people that get what you're trying to do and understand um, is is very helpful for sure. Um, you said that you you wrote poetry early on and some short stories, but had never tried your hand at writing a novel. What when you began writing that first novel, what was the the difference for you in in form uh, over, you know, writing poetry, which is a, a form all its own, and short stories, which tend to be more compact and, you know, get to the point or, or you know, no subplots and, and that sort of thing. When you started kind of letting your um, your creative juices flow and, and, you know, kind of really feeling the spread out nature of a novel. What, what was that experience like for you? Well, I've actually, I think I just think in novel form, sort of long form. And I'm actually, yeah. I'm terrible at short stories. I can't write them. <laughs> Every time I come up with what I think is an idea for a short story, it, it turns into a novel. <laughs> <laughs> so, I always want all those details and I want to know about all the different characters. And uh, so I, th I think short stories are just really not my forte. Um, I don't know. I loved traditional British detective novels yeah. and it was something about that form just really appealed to me. I was actually a big fantasy and science fiction fan. Yeah. Uh, I'm still really like to read fantasy urban fantasy not sort of not so much you know dragons sort of fantasy right. but stuff with magic um sure. but i never came up with any idea for a plot or world building um so my brain apparently just doesn't work that way either <laughs> but i really like crime novels i like the structure of the crime novel uh i came up with 
the writing in multiple viewpoints, which seems to work really well for me. Yeah. Um, I've never written anything in first person, um, single viewpoint, um, except for, you know, a few little bits of, of things here and there. Um, and it was fun, but um, I think the multiple viewpoint format really works. Yeah. Well, it's definitely working for, for your series. That's for sure. Um, you said that you were always a fan of the, the British mystery novel for, for people that are not familiar. What distinguishes a, a British detective novel from like an American gumshoe novel? If you, you know, think in those terms or a, a modern mystery in, in, you know, like, um, um, I'm I'm completely drawing a blank now. Um, but like like any any particular uh, American uh, mystery writer, what like like the Longmire mysteries, for instance, what what separates a a British mystery from a quintessential American mystery? I don't think the distinction is is valid as it used to be. Okay, uh, I mean people are writing British detective novels these days that are gritty. Yeah. Um. And, you know, they can be very dark. I, it, I think that it, it used to be assumed that British detective novels were sort of more civil and less violent. And I'm actually... Is that kind of where our sure. cozy mystery... Um, yeah, yeah. And I'm not from? even sure that that was ever true. Um, yeah. If you go back, I'm listening to, uh, on Audible, I'm, I'm listening to Lucy Worsley's... Uh, biography of Agatha Christie, which is really interesting. But if you yeah. go back and look, even at Christie, some of her crimes were horrible. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, children killed people. They, uh, people assume, I think people who assume that they're very cozy have never actually, you know, really read Christie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um it's more our assumptions that we bring to the book more than yeah. the book themselves. Look at, at, at people like Patricia Highsmith and Ruth Rendell and, you know, these sort of classics of British mystery and suspense. And even P.D. James, because I was a big fan of P.D. James and did a lot of sort of mirroring of P.D. James books when I first started writing. I mean, looking at how she structured things. Um, but hers are actually quite dark. So I think the whole thing is a little bit blown out of proportion. And a lot of it is just setting. They're, they're, they just feel quite different in setting. Yeah. Um, that first novel that you wrote, was that uh, a Duncan Kincaid? In, yes. In yeah. yeah. All in the same series. That was a share in death published in February 1993 and still in print. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, um, I've talked to a lot of authors who um, and, and it's a very common occurrence that that authors will have a, a novel or more um, that resides in a desk drawer or a trunk, you know, as we used to call them trunk novels. Um, and and it's a rarity that someone who writes their first novel um, sticks with that novel until it's published. And, you know, and people um, start new novels for a host of reasons, but um, what is it that you can put your finger on that just felt special about that novel that you knew that it was going to go the distance? 
I loved my characters. I loved important. The, the setup and the world and, um, you know, the specific world building for that book. Um, yeah. And I thought it had huge potential in order to introduce new characters, use different settings. Um, and I think that's why I've never gotten tired of it because I have taken them to different places and the characters have grown and changed and other characters have come into the series. Um, so, and I just, I loved the process of writing it. I can remember my ex-husband asked me at some point and said, well, what are you going to do if you don't sell this book? And I said, I'm going to write another one. <laughs> and I, when I sold uh, Share and Death, I had already started on the second book in the series, All Should Be Well. And I knew I wanted to write series novels. You, that, that's an important distinction. You started writing the second book in the series, not yes. another book with different characters. And you knew that, that, that these were the characters for you. Yeah. And I, I very, very much wanted to write a series. And actually, that was one of the things that sold the first book. I sold that first book within six months of finishing it. I never had a rejection letter. Uh, I sold the first wow. three, three books under contract to Scribner. Um, but one of the things that helped make that sale was the fact that I had the second one partly written and I had uh, a proposal for the third one. Wow. So, wow. Um, when, you know, it's, it's a very different thing in writing uh, a first book in a series where the, you know, the, there are no limits because you haven't created the thing yet and writing the 19th book in a series where you have an established world, you have an established order and structure to these characters' lives and the things going on. Um, so maybe maybe um, this question maybe comes in two parts. But when you're thinking of a new book, um, what comes to you first? Is it uh, a new plot that you're going to introduce these characters to, and a new does it does the mystery come first? And what was the first thing that came to you in that first book where you had no uh, no history for these characters? Oh, that one was absolutely the setting. Uh, and mm. then I created the detectives in order to use the setting. Um, gotcha. But after that, it's been sort of uh, which comes first, <laughs> the chicken or the egg? Uh, it's yeah. usually a combination. Usually I have a setting in mind that I would like to explore in a book. And I have ideas about what is going on in the continuing characters' lives that I, and then I see how that could fit into the specific crime story, but it, it kind of all goes on at once. Gotcha. Um, what what makes a good mystery like when you're thinking of a new book and you're thinking of a, a you know something to um to put in your character's path and there's a there's a, a mystery to solve there's a riddle to unravel um how do you start thinking about those mysteries and and do you do you start thinking about the the question or do you think about it in in terms of here's a mystery and here's how I would solve it. Uh, or 
do you know the solution to it? I usually do. I, I don't think I've ever written a novel where I didn't have an idea where I wanted the story to end up. And, and I have lots of writer friends who are pansters yeah. who say, you know, they just get an idea for a situation and they start writing and they don't know who did it or how the story is going to end up. And I can't imagine doing that. I mean, I am not an obsessive plotter. I don't sit down and plot out every bit of the book before I start writing it. Um, but I do, I do like to have a lodestone. Um, my big question and what tends to bog me down sometimes in the middle is seeing, is figuring out what logical ways it will play out so that my detectives figure out what happened in a reasonable and believable way. Um, and I don't always know how that's going to happen <laughs> or, or if it will, which is the really <laughs> scary part. <laughs> bet. Bet. You know, there's been lots of, lots of books where in the middle I've said, Oh my God, I don't think this is going to work. How am I going to do this? Yeah. Um, with 19 books in a series, uh, is there ever a time where a book is driven more by what's going on in the character's life than it is about a mystery that is placed in front of them or a crime to solve? Um, how often have the books really taken on the, uh, the character's journey more than the crime? Oh, again, that's tough. That's, you know, and they, they kind of get intertwined in a lot of but ways. Yeah, don't they're, they? they're so intertwined. And yeah. I don't think, I, at least at this point in the series, I don't, I can't imagine writing a novel. And obviously you want the books to be accessible to people who haven't read previous books in the series. Right. So you want somebody right. to be able to pick up, a killing of innocence and start reading and have enough clues as to what is going on with the characters to, to not feel lost. Sure. But, but there has to be some sort of forward movement or evolution in the, in the character's ongoing story, I think. So I, I can't imagine writing a personally static novel from my characters viewpoints and i'm usually setting things up a book or two in advance where i i kind of know what i want to have happen in the next book or the book after that so yeah. um with a with a series that spans 30 years um a lot has changed in, ah, in the, the world and the technology <laughs> of the floating mystery. timeline <laughs> yeah you know so many books uh so many traditional mysteries could be solved just you know by a cell phone you know he yeah. just picked up the phone and he called for help you know um how do you keep up one with um you know, with the advances in technology and, and has technology caused you to think differently about the way we handle these plots? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I've always wanted to write novels where 
the detectives solve the crime through deduction. Mm -hmm. um, and although actually my background is in biology and uh, even after when I first started writing, I took a, a forensics course because I was fascinated by the science of it, uh, which is still true. But I don't I have never wanted my characters to solve the mysteries using technology. And sometimes it's in a, with advances in technology, I think it gets harder and harder to write around. Uh, one of the things I think I tend to do is to really compress the timeline so that the invest uh, investigations happen really quickly, much yeah. more qu quickly than they probably would in real life. But, you know, this is fiction. <laughs> Nobody, uh, you know, for instance, in A Killing of Innocence, I got like, you know, half a dozen detectives who are working on this case. In real life, it would probably be 60. Um, but we can't, you can't write that. You, you right. have to make, you have to make adjustments that will make it manageable while still keeping it believable. Right. Um, so, you know, I try to work around CCTV cameras, for instance. Um, and, yeah. and when they come to a resolution of the story, I usually try to have worked in, forensics or video or something that will help back up the case when it goes to court. But I don't want that to be how the case is solved. Yeah. Does that, does that answer that? I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, have you had an opportunity to use modern technology to your advantage? Like oh um, the ubiquity of cell phones and social media has, has that played into uh, how you solve a mystery? Um, I got to think about that. Not, I mean, they, they have, they do use social media. I, for instance, in a killing of innocence, they look up the characters, right. social, social media, um, because it's just a part of life now. So right. of course they would do that, but I don't think I've really used it to help solve a crime. Yeah. Um, Again, I feel like that's kind of cheating. Well, well yeah, yeah. Um, when you began writing the series, as you said earlier, you were living in Scotland. Um, but Had you, lived in Scotland, yeah, yeah and, you, and England. You don't live there now, though, right? Aren't you in Texas? No, I'm, I'm in Texas, and I am a native Texan, as you might have guessed from yeah. the accent. Yeah. How do you stay connected to um, to a, a you know, another country uh while writing about that other country living here in, in america had does that uh pose any challenges well normally i i spend at least a month out of the year in the uk and sometimes i make more than one trip and you know spend more time than that uh, and have ever since I started writing this series and what happened with killing of the killing of innocence and you know people will notice that there was a longer than usual gap here between books but I had started the research for this book in London in October November of 2019 and we all know what happened? I mean, I had planned to go back in the spring and, you know, again in the fall of 2020. And uh, I, I couldn't go. And it was 
it was tough. I mean, I was writing about a part of London that I know, but that is not the same as actually being right. there and walking the streets and going into the places that, you know, or the, the locations, the settings in the book. Uh, and it was just really, really tough. And I bogged down horribly. I, and I finally I just sort of had to pull myself up by bootstraps and say, yeah. okay, this is not going to happen. I'm, I'm not going to be able to go to London and I just have to do the best I can. Um, and I spent so much time on Google street view. <laughs> I was, I was about to ask you what things you used. As I a don't know. I don't know how I could have written this book without current, technology. I mean, I literally walked the streets with Google oh, Street fantastic. View and of course, you know, use internet to research all sorts of places. And yeah. um, so it, what was really strange when we got to the, the copy edit and the page proof stage on this book, that I would read passages and I would have to think for a minute about whether that was someplace that I had actually been in person or whether it was someplace that I had just been on Google. <laughs> oh, wow. So are there things that, that you started to use then that, that have kind of become part of your, your writing or researching process now that, you know, add, well, did you I, add I any on, tools yeah. to your toolkit? I was already using, doing a lot of research on the internet, but just as, as in addition to what I would do in real life. So uh, I wasn't so much bringing in new technology is just really learning to take better advantage yeah. of what was available. Yeah. Um, over 19 books, has your writing process changed uh, or your, your planning plotting process? Do you, do you write books differently now than you did then other than, you know, your, your the computer technology has, you know, progressed and things like that. But yes, Word Perfect. We all remember Word Perfect. Oh yeah. Uh interesting interestingly, uh not really. Uh, a couple of years ago, the University of North Texas here, <coughs> sorry. Uh it, because they have my manuscripts and materials. For their for their library, they did an exhibition with my notes and um, editing process from the very first book, and I was shocked at how similar it was to what I wow. still do. Uh, I, I tend to start out with a basic idea for the book, and then I tend to have storylines where. I have I have maybe half a dozen major storylines in each mm -hmm. book that I, I know that that's what I want to write about. And I will take each storyline and start it like bullet points with where we start in the story and what has to happen at the end of this story and then what incidents have to happen to move it from here to hear if that makes sense right and then i try to enter and i do that for every storyline and then i try to interlace 
the different storylines. And some books are a lot more complicated than others because I have books that have had historical storylines that have had to be worked into the contemporary storyline. And But my process is still pretty much the same. Interesting. Um, Deborah, what makes a great mystery? Is it is it the the mechanical, you know, solving the puzzle, uh, or is it uh, or is a great mystery more about the people and the way they behave around a mysterious uh, occurrence? What 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 is the the most fun? I think it's the psychological impact that the crime has on not only the detectives, but the people who are directly affected by the crime in the story. I've always been fascinated on how it affects these violent and unexpected acts affect ordinary people. Because most of my characters are ordinary. I mean, yeah. it's like did this happened to you or me or your neighbor down the street. And also really interested in what makes ordinary people do such an extraordinary thing. I mean, most of us think we wouldn't be driven to murder. Yeah. Um, but what would be the tipping point? Um, so that's always really, really interesting to me and part of the, the psychology. And of course we want a puzzle yeah. and that's, that's part of that moves the plot. Yeah. <laughs> we have to have that plot tension and we want a resolution. And one of the things I think makes mysteries, traditional mysteries in particular, um, so satisfying for readers is that we have a sense that justice is done. And I think especially in the last couple of years, because we have all felt like life was so out of our control mm. um, and that so, so many bad things were happening that we couldn't do anything about, yeah. um, that justice wouldn't be done. So I, I think it's very satisfying and comforting to people to read a novel where there are consequences. Yeah. Well, I, I think the 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 best mysteries the ones that that hit the hardest um don't involve superheroes and no. the villains are rarely mustache twirling supervillains you know that a, a lot of times it, it's people that are driven or are pushed to a point and then regular people that have to uh you know see that justice is done that those those are the ones that that, that tend to stick with us well, and I think it has to have consequences. I, I think your reader needs to have empathy for the characters in the book and yeah. whether or not the crime, the murder, the crime is resolved has to have consequences for the characters in the book that so that the reader is emotionally invested in the outcome. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The new book is called A Killing of Innocence, and it's available everywhere today. You can everywhere. go to your favorite bookstore, grab it off the shelf, or we'll put links in the show notes where you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. Um, Deborah, have you listened to any of the audiobook? 
Oh no, I waited. I was up until like one last night waiting for the audiobook to drop and it yeah. didn't. <laughs> oh. So it is available. I don't know why they didn't release it at, at midnight, my time zone, but and Kindle, the Kindle dropped. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I yeah. pulled up the Kindle and started reading it last night, but, uh, but the audio is available today. So I haven't had a chance to listen to any of it yet, but uh, I had had last week, I think, a, an audio sample on SoundCloud. And I love my narrator. Gerard Doyle is just fabulous. He reads Duncan and Gemma the way I hear them in my head, which I just I think it. is extraordinary. Absolutely. Um, and I listened to that first little sample on SoundCloud, and I literally got goosebumps so i can't <laughs> wait to listen to it i can't wait for other people to listen to it i know it's uh it, it's downloaded in my audible app um i read the hardcover uh you know a month ago um but i, I can't it's a it's a whole new experience when it you is to, to it's weird it's weird for me yeah because when i listen to the audiobooks it is like i didn't write it yeah. right it's wild it's wild yeah a killing of innocence available everywhere now go out and grab it deborah thank you so much for taking time to come on the show with thank me today. you hank that's our episode for today there's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing but also the business of publishing be sure to subscribe to the storycraft cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode the Storycraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening. <laughs>